as I mentioned, and as you heard from Rushing, and we're starting a, a summer series called Gospel Marriage. And we're looking, we're taking a break from our study on Exodus. We go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and we often take, take breaks, typically during the summer, typically during winter. And we pause and we, we, we talk about a topic. We, we chose this topic last November. We chose this topic for a variety of reasons. Culturally, we chose this topic for a variety of reasons within our own church. There are a lot of hurts. There are a lot of wounds. There are a lot of struggling marriages. There are a lot of marriages on the cusp. There are a lot of marriages on the precipice. There are also a lot of great marriages. And we all need wisdom. And before we need all of the wisdom of practicalities, we need one thing, we need the gospel. And that's what this series is about. As you look at the Bible, there are plenty of places that you look at and you see that, that God speaks through metaphors and parables and analogies, that he uses things that we can understand to communicate things that are so infinite and profound that are difficult to understand. When you look in the Old Testament, when Abraham wondered, would he have a son, would he have a heritage, would he have a lineage beyond him, God takes him outside and says, look at all of those stars, something he can comprehend. And he says, can you number all of them? The answer is clearly no. You will have a lineage, a heritage that infinitely surpasses all the stars in the universe. Nations will come from you, Abraham. Something he could see to understand something he could not fully grasp. When you look in Jeremiah, the, the people of Israel are asking a question, can we trust God? Is he on the throne? Does he know our names? Does he care for us? He takes them outside and he says, look at the sun and look at the moon. And he asks them a question. He says, can you make the sun stop shining? Can you make the moon to stop shining? Of course, the answer is no. They can't do it. And then he says, if you can break my covenant with the sun and the moon. In other words, if you can make the sun and the moon to stop shining, then you have reason to distrust me. You have reason to worry. You have reason to wonder if, I, if I'm capable of doing and fulfilling all the promises. When you look in the New Testament, Jesus teaches in parables. In fact, many say that that's almost all he taught in was parables. Things, common language, things that we can understand to communicate profound truths. And that's what Paul says marriage was given for. And that's what we're going to study in this series. In all of these cases, we need to lift the diamond of these parables and metaphors and whatever it is that God's using to teach, we need to lift that diamond, hold it up and turn it and look at all of its facets and, and just wring it out for all that we can learn and all that we can glean from it. And that's what Paul tells us that we need to do as well here with this understanding of marriage. So we're going to see a couple of things this morning. First, as we start this series, we need to understand what we are saying and what we are not saying. That's important. We need to give some disclaimers, some caveats to make sure that we're all on the same page of what we're talking about. And then we're going to look at the text and we're going to understand this profound statement that Paul says. It is utterly profound, mind-boggling what he is communicating in the book of Ephesians and in Ephesians 5, specifically verse 32. And then we need to see what Paul does and we need to do the same thing. We need to bring that profound down to reality. It's not just all about theology pie in the sky, Paul says. It's about right now, right here, reality for every one of us in every relationship, regardless of your marital status. 
So let's look first at some disclaimers, some, some statements on what we are saying and what we are not saying. We'll, we'll do this in what we're not saying and couple it with what we are saying. First, this is not a study. This is not a 10 principles to a better marriage study. Maybe some of you were excited. You were sharpening your pencils to take a bunch of notes. You were sharpening your elbow to throw it into your spouse's side. Maybe that's what you were here for this morning, 10 principles to better your marriage. I want you to understand, we all need practical wisdom for our marriages, those of us that are married. We all need practical wisdom for our relationships. But you and I both need to understand something. Long before we ever get to 10 principles on how to better whatever relationship we might be in, we desperately need the gospel. Those 10 principles have no power without the gospel. Without the good news of our infinite, loving, heavenly spouse coming for his bride, us. Without that revelation melting us, we have no power to sustain or apply whatever ten principles that we study. In any context, in any relationship. So what the study is about is first and foremost about the gospel. The one marriage, the one relationship we desperately all need. And then how that one marriage to Christ transforms every other relationship. That's what this series is about. Said another way, this series is about the infinite universe eclipsing love of Christ. And how marriage is a telescope to point us there. That's what Paul's saying here in this text. That marriage was given for all of us, whatever our marital status, as a telescope to just blow our minds at the infinite revelation of God's universe-eclipsing love in Jesus Christ for us. That's why marriage was given. That's what Paul's going to argue. And then after seeing that love, we are expected, intended, to bring that love down into every everyday reality and into every relationship. So this series is about the one relationship we all desperately need. The one relationship every earthly marriage is pointing to. The one relationship that we will spend eternity celebrating for eternity. The one relationship that we're offered in Jesus Christ. That's what this series is about. And now I know, as we talk about that, that causes some of you that were married, that were sharpening your pencils and sharpening your elbows, to say, okay, well now this is irrelevant for me. Please. I was doing a, a marriage seminar, marriage conference retreat for, for another church, and I was trying to lay this point out, and I got interrupted about this point halfway through, and, I was, and, and, and a young lady said, listen, I appreciate all of that. I know marriage matters to God. I just need the 10 things. Can you just give me the 10 things? And I'm trying to clarify for her, and I'm trying to clarify for us that 10 things are worthless apart from the gospel. The 10 things, the five things, the 25 things, the books, whatever we might read are worthless. They're valuable for wisdom, but they're powerless if we aren't shaped and transformed by the gospel. We will never bend out God's love that he's poured out on us, never pour it out on others if we are not constantly astonished that he would love me, his unfaithful bride. When that melts you, it will move you. And that is what sustains us into the ten things. So that's one thing that we're not saying and we are saying. Another thing that we're not saying and are saying, caveat, 
is we're not saying, and this is so important, we're not saying that those who are married are better than those who are unmarried. And vice versa, we're not saying those who are unmarried are lesser in quality and value than those who are married. If we were saying that, we would not be preaching the gospel. We would be saying, if that's what we were saying, we would be saying that your status, your marital status, is what earns you favor before God. That's not the gospel. There is no status, earthly status, that you and I can achieve before God. There is only one status that you and I desperately need. There is only one identity that we are desperately in need of. There is only one value that we must have, and that is the status of being the bride of Christ, being married to Jesus. Marriage to Christ changes radically our identity. It it is the value every person is longing for. It is the status that you must and and must desperately have and, and are desperately longing for. And so we're not saying that, that marriage or those who are married are, in, are some kind of in a better class, that those of you who are not married are just eking out a second class citizenship behind us who are royalty who are married. That's not what we're saying. That's not the gospel. And vice versa, that we're not saying that those who are unmarried are of some lesser value or, or, or less than those who are married. In fact, what the scriptures say, and we'll study this, is that all of us are going to receive an even better marriage, a better wedding, and a true and better family in the kingdom of God. Jesus says that in Mark. In fact, he says it twice. And we receive that family here and now. Not just then, but here and now. So we're not saying that those who are married are better and those who are not are less. That would not be the gospel What we are saying is that marriage to Christ gives us the one status, the one identity, the one value that we need. And that status, beautifully, is not individualistic. It's also corporate because we, Paul says, it is for the, he's referring to Christ and the church. The bride is not individualistic. It's corporate. The third thing we're saying is we're, we're not saying is that only those who are married can display the glory of God's grace and covenant faithfulness. We're not saying that only those who are married can display God's grace or covenant faithfulness. That's important for us to articulate because some of you might think, okay, I see that marriage is this unbelievable telescope pointing us to the infinite glory of God's grace towards us in Jesus. Well, what if I'm not married? Am I not the telescope? Do I not get a chance to participate? Am I, do I not get a chance to display God's grace and God's covenant faithfulness? No, every single one of us, every single one of us who are married to Christ, who are, who are united to him, in union to him, have the privilege and the joy every single day in every context and every relationship to display God's grace. We get to do it in all sorts of different ways as we love our enemy rather than hate. We're displaying God's grace and covenant faithfulness. When we seek reconciliation in a dispute rather than rush to court, 1 Corinthians 6, we display the gospel-transformed life. When parents love their children, though they would love to choke them out, they are displaying the infinite love and grace and covenant faithfulness of God. (laughs) 
And when children love their parents, though they fail them and wound them, they are displaying the infinite love of grace and the covenant faithfulness of God. In fact, that's what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 5. He, he's not just talking about husbands and wives. You know that, right? He's, he's talking about, in Ephesians 5.18, what does a spirit-filled life look like? And then he gets three categories of people. Husbands and wives, children and parents, employer and employee. He's talking about the spirit-filled life, the marriage to Christ changes every earthly relationship. It's poured out. It's expected to be poured out into every relationship. So what we are saying is that marriage was given as a unique display because Paul highlights that unique display and that's why we say that. Paul doesn't say all the things that he says here about the other context of those relationships, it doesn't mean they don't have the opportunity to display God's grace and covenant faithfulness. It does mean that marriage uniquely displays. And why is that? Because two people covenant together in, in, in relationship, in marriage, and in that covenant, it's one of the, the, most, the pinnacle, most intimate relationships you can have, and it's the opportunity then where two people can wound each other most deeply. And be tempted to separate and go the other ways. But when we don't, but we show grace and love and forgiveness, the same grace, love, and forgiveness that we've received in Jesus, we display the gospel in God's covenant faithfulness. So those are some of the things that we are not saying and what we are saying. And why we say those things is because of what Paul says in Ephesians, particularly Ephesians 5, 32. And so let's see the profound nature of what he says here. Before we dive into this, I appreciate what Ray Ortland has said about marriage. He says, marriage does not appear profound, not anymore at least. In meeting someone new and in introducing my wife, Janie, that's Ray's wife, not mine. In meeting someone new and introducing my wife, Janie, no one has ever said to me, you're married? No way. I've, I mean, I've heard of marriage, but I've never actually met a married couple. This is incredible. Hey, everybody, look at this married couple. He says, marriage does not astound us like that. And yet, if we read and understand Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, it ought to. It ought to. Marriage is such a profound, Paul says, mystery, and it's pointing us to something. Christ in the church. He says, as we read earlier in Ephesians 5.32, we are members of Christ's body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Here's a little bit of context. In Ephesians, Paul is... Is, is talking about what union in Christ looks like, what marriage to Christ looks like. In the, in the first chapter, Paul is so flabbergasted and floored and blown away by the infinite blessings that come through Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, he says, In Christ we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Take that one verse and go meditate on it for the rest of your life. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is poured out on us in Jesus Christ. All of God's blessings, all of God's mercy, all of God's grace, the infinite God of the universe, all of his grace and mercy and blessings are poured out on us in Jesus Christ. 
And Paul goes on after verse 3 to just recount blessing after blessing, all the various aspects of some of those blessings. And then he gets to verse 15 and he says to the Ephesian church, I celebrate, I'm so thankful that you have believed and received this truth of the gospel in Jesus. All those blessings. I'm just shocked that you have. I'm so, I'm so grateful for it. And then he says something even more profound. And I pray that you would have a spirit of knowledge, that your, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would know the immeasurable hope, the riches that are in the saints, the community of faith, and the power that is in Jesus Christ. So hear what Paul's saying in Ephesians 1. He's saying, I know all of these infinite blessings have been poured out on us in Jesus, and I'm so grateful and thankful that you've received it. But then he prays that they would know it even better. In other words, what he's saying is what you know about Jesus, what you know about the infinite, surpassing, immeasurable riches of Christ is but a thimble full of water in comparison to the ocean. What you think you know about his love towards you is infinitely small in comparison to the infinite treasure that is who Jesus is and what God has poured out. And Paul is just, he just, he's beside himself. He's going on and on about it. And he's praying that they would know this power, this, all of this union that is in Christ Jesus. But he doesn't want us to just stay there in, 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 in the, theological high-mindedness. He wants to bring it down to reality. So in chapter 4, he turns a corner and begins to bring this to real-life application here and now. Therefore, in light of your union with Christ, in light of all of his grace and mercy and blessings being poured out on you, therefore, live according to it, Ephesians 4.1. Let it overflow into every relationship you have. Pour it out. Receive it, dwell on it, be shaped by it, be transformed by it, never leave it, never take your eyes off of it. Just keep pouring it out in every relationship. And then he gets to Ephesians chapter 5. For example, in marriage with husbands and wives. And in the middle of that instruction, as he gives wisdom, his practical wisdom here, on how a husband and wife should live together... Paul, again, can't help himself. He, he, he's, he's looking at Christ, and he comes down to the practical level of marriage, and he can't help himself. He goes back to Jesus, and that's what he's doing in verse 32. And he can't help himself because he, he's pointing out something. He says a mystery. It's not a secret that can't be understood. It's a mystery that's been hidden for ages. And that mystery is that marriage all along, from the beginning, was given to point us to the ultimate marriage of Jesus. That, that, that marriage is ultimately pointing us to his love and his grace towards his unfaithful bride. Paul gives us in the world the very purpose of marriage. It's what every sociologist is trying to understand. Why does marriage exist? It's what every magazine is trying to write about. Why, do, why should we, Time magazine, on the cover, 20, 2015, 2010, 2015, why does marriage matter? Should we even care about it anymore? It's what every Christian is trying to, to ask. If you're asked in an elevator, why does marriage matter? You might give a few answers, but, but really pressed. Why does it matter to God? 
Why should we hold it in high regard? Why do judges, they're trying to ask this question. Judges, sociologists, magazines, everyone's trying to ask, what is marriage given for? In Ephesians 5.32, Paul gives the purpose of marriage. Theologians argue, and and they're right, there's scriptural scriptural evidence to this. You can make from Genesis chapter 2 that that marriage was given as a societal good, that it was the primary institution before the foundation of every other institution. Every other institution builds on that. It's a societal good. It curbs the chaos of our world. They would be right. You can make that argument. It's a relational good, that it's, it's given for companionship. It, it, they would be right. You can make that argument from Genesis. And then they would also argue that it's a procreational good. Be fruitful and multiply, that it's good for the, the sake of replication, multiplication, and, and bearing up children in a, in a safe in, in, in context. You can make that argument. But Paul doesn't make any of those arguments. What's the purpose of marriage, Paul? He doesn't go to those, three, those big three theological arguments. He goes to one. It's a pictorial good. What Paul is saying is that marriage was given. It matters. It ought to be held in high honor and high esteem because marriage is a parable of the gospel. That marriage points us to the infinite treasure and love of Jesus towards his bride. This is why marriage matters. This is why marriage was given. In other words, what Paul is saying is marriage is the entire storyline of the Bible. This is the point. And I want us to see this morning how he can make that argument. That this is the storyline of the Bible. I want you to see the whole storyline of the Bible, the whole narrative of the Bible. And I want you to see what we're doing is biblical theology. We're tracing a theme through the Bible and we're seeing What Paul is saying, that this is the ultimate storyline. Marriage is the story. Our marriage to Christ. Let's look first in Genesis. You know the bookends, right? I think you know the bookends. How the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created. Genesis 1.1. You realize that the end also ends with creation. The other bookend on the opposite end of this story is new creation. Revelation 21, 1, that that there I saw the the new heavens and the new earth descending, and and descending from what? From who? From God. And and so it it begins with creation, and it ends in creation. What what Paul's saying is those bookends are, are, are not just two separate things, that marriage runs from the beginning to the end. And what we're going to see is they collide right here in the middle in Ephesians chapter 5. Inside of those two bookends is marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, an amazing verse. And again, we, we're not going to get into all the details of wisdom that we could. We're trying to trace this story and this theme. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, it says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman... And brought her to the man. There's three key words in that text. He, he took, which interestingly becomes the primary word throughout the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, for what, it, what marriage is. It, it's to take a bride. It, God, God takes a, a bride for his son. The, the, throughout the Old Testament, a man takes a bride. We even say it today in our marriage vows, in our marriage ceremony. Do you take so-and-so to be your bride? Do you take so-and-so to be your husband? So, so God took, and then God made a woman. This is amazing. Made into a woman. 
It's the only other places in the Bible where those, that word made is used. Psalm 78, 69, and Amos chapter 9, verse 6, it describes God's intricate design and beautiful splendor that he used pouring into creating heaven. In other words, she's no byproduct. She's no secondary afterthought. He put as much intricate care and design and beauty and splendor and majesty as he did in creating heaven. Which, by the way, solves 92% of all marriage arguments. Ladies, you do not have to ask anymore, how do I look in this dress? Your beauty is on par with heaven. Husbands, your answer is now, your beauty is on par with heaven. 92% of all marriage problems are solved in that one word right there. And then what does he do? He takes a bride, he, he fashions her, he adorns her with beauty and splendor, and he brings her to his son, Adam. He brings her to, brought, God brought, which means to carry along and present. So God presents a pure and spotless bride adorned with beauty and splendor and presents her to his son. How does the Bible go back to the other end of the, the bookends? Marriage, what does Revelation chapter 21 verse 2 say? It says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The new heavens, the new earth, and all that are in them are adorned in beauty and splendor and majesty and glory as for a husband. Just inside of that, Revelation chapter 19 says that the adornment that, that we will receive as the bride of Christ is given to us, granted to us by grace. Revelation 19.8, and it's fine twine linen and pure and spotless clothing. Remember what we talked about last week? This is what God does from the beginning, and this is what he will do at the end. He presents, he takes a bride, and he presents her pure and spotless to the heavenly groom, to the first son and the first Adam and the last Adam. So we have creation at the beginning and the end. Just inside of those, we have marriage and God presenting a pure and spotless bride. And just inside of those bookends, we have rejoicing. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, Adam loses his mind. Look how the son, look how Adam responds. Verse 23, Genesis 2, 23. This, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This, he, he is... First and foremost, he's breaking out into poetry. He's breaking out into song. Husbands, you need to understand that's before the fall, okay? So poetry and rejoicing and, and song are, are not corrupted, okay? They're good things. That's how Adam responds. He rejoices in joy and, and astonishment that she, her beauty is, is unrivaled. It's, un, it, it's, it's so amazing to him. And what he's saying when it says, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he's saying... At last I've found the one who's, who fits me. At last I've found the one made for me, fashioned for me. That's what, what he's doing. He's responding with joy and, and rejoicing. And what do we see on the other end but rejoicing? When Jesus comes in Mark chapter 2, verse 19, some disciples ask him, why did why John's disciples, why, why do they... 
fast and your disciples don't fast. And Jesus tells them that, that fasting, the, the, the somber, disciplined re- removal of something that's longing for something else, it's not, it's not the right emotion when the bridegroom comes, Jesus says. The right emotion is joy. The right emotion is rejoicing. The right emotion is celebration when the bridegroom comes. Jesus is the bridegroom. Do you remember the first feast, the first celebration, the first miracle that Jesus performs, the wedding feast at Canaan? And what does he do? He provides new wine. And what's new wine a sign of? Infinite rejoicing. It's a sign of new life. It's a sign of new rejoicing. What is Jesus, by the gallons that he provides, saying? There's a wedding to come and a joy that will eclipse every earthly, every earthly joy and it comes in the marriage supper of the Lamb. It comes in marriage to Jesus. And that's exactly how Revelation on the other end, the book in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 to 9 says, Revelation 19, 6, John hears a multitude. It, it's, it's so loud There's so many people celebrating. It sounds like the roar of mighty waters. It sounds like like all of creation is cheering. It sounds like everyone is celebrating. It's not just the bridegroom. It's not just the bride. It's all the guests. It's everyone. Because he says in verse 9, blessed is he, anyone who's invited, everyone who's at the wedding is celebrating the joining of the bride and the groom, the heavenly bride groom to his bride, the church. So we have creation, creation, marriage, marriage, rejoicing, rejoicing. And now back to the beginning, we're getting so close to the middle where everything collides with Jesus. We have creation, marriage, rejoicing, and then we have leaving, cleaving, and union. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 tells us, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, stick to, cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Permanence is baked in there. It's said twice, hold fast and become one flesh. In light of God preparing and presenting a pure and spotless bride, in light of the joy that overflows at seeing this bride, that the, the man is to then cling to her, take her unto himself, to be cling to cling to. The, and it says, the son will leave his father and mother and cling to his bride, and the two shall become one flesh. There's so much marriage wisdom we could see there. God is clearly the one that, that, that designs marriage. There's a, there's a design for it. There's an intentionality to it. There's a prioritization of marriage over every other earthly relationship. But I want you not to miss something in the text. And it's odd. Because in the ancient Near East, from the Old Testament, even all the way through the New Testament, a man did not technically leave his father in his father's house and go off to a distant land and marry some, a woman, someone else, and, and develop a family there and a life there. That's not how the ancient Near East operated. The context was not that way. In fact, what happens was a father identified a bride, prepared the bride, adorned the bride, and said, that's going to be your bride. And then the man immediately went back to the father's house and either built on a room onto the father's house, an addition onto the father's house, or, or a house on the father's property. And when that was prepared, 
the son returned to take his bride unto himself and bring her home to the father's house. What do we see as the New Testament equivalent in, in the New Testament? John says in John 3.29 that Jesus is the true bridegroom. That he's come to take his bride. He came in flesh and blood and he came to rescue his bride. That's what John is articulating. And then in John chapter 14, the disciples are like, well, hold on, Jesus. You can't be, you can't be crucified. You can't leave. I thought you were the bridegroom. I thought you came to take us to be unto yourself. I thought you, I thought you came to rescue us and to take you, us to be with you. I thought we were the the bride, you were the bridegroom. I thought this was all about you coming to rescue as our, as our rescue and redeemer. Where, what's going, what gives? In John 14, verses 1 to 3, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is articulating what he's doing. I have come to rescue and redeem, and I will return to take you unto myself. Where, where did he go after his resurrection? But to the Father's house to prepare a place for us to come and return to rescue us, his bride. And that... That brings us to the middle of the story here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. We've worked from the bookends into the middle, into the, just the, the collision of all of these, this storyline, into the middle here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32. It, it, it's like when a storm hits the, 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 the bay and that water hits the, the bayway and it just hits and it collides and it, col it just splashes everywhere and it lands over there and it lands over there. That's what Ephesians 5.32 is. It, we're going to celebrate 4th of July tomorrow. We're going to watch the fireworks show. There's a grand finale where all the fireworks in your eyes are going everywhere and it's amazing. It's like the symphony. It's, it's all the instruments are playing at the same time. Everything collides in this verse in Ephesians 5.32. It's the pinnacle. It's the middle of this story. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This mystery, he's again, not saying it's something that can't be understood. It's saying it's something that's been hidden from the beginning and just now being revealed. And I'm proclaiming to you that marriage is intended to point to the marriage of Christ and his bride. And the key word in the verse is, is the word refers. It's a little word. Refers. What Paul is saying is, I'm holding up two things here, and they are in comparison. That's what the word refers means, comparison to one another. That, that I'm holding this lesser thing, and it points to this greater thing. They're in comparison, but one is lesser and one is greater. That, that marriage, the lesser thing, earthly marriage, is intended to be a telescope pointing to the infinite, unbelievable, astonishing love and marriage of Christ. And his church. Of his infinite love for you. His unfaithful bride. Paul's saying that earthly marriage, as it was designed and given by God, was a telescope, meaning to be a telescope, intended to be a telescope to point us to something greater. The universe eclipsing love of Christ. The astonishing, unbelievable love of Christ for us. 
He's absolutely giving marriage wisdom in Ephesians chapter 5, but he's saying so much more. He's saying marriage is the story. Your marriage to Christ. This is why Christ came. He came to rescue you as his bride, to take you unto himself, to be united to him. Don't think this is the storyline of the Bible. One writer says that the word union, which can be used for marriage, one flesh union, that that word union is used over 200 times in the New Testament in all its various forms. In Christ, united to Christ, union to Christ. It's used over 200 times, which amounts to one reference every page of the New Testament. Our union to Christ is the point. Paul is saying your union to Christ is so infinitely the point that you must be united to Christ. You desperately want to be united to Christ and need to be united to Christ. Jesus is the groom and you are the bride. His pursuit and faithful love His rescue of us, his marriage to us, is the point of the Bible. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why did Jesus live and die? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, washing her with water, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, in any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is why it's a collision of verses here, because a collision of of topics here. I thought God presented the bride to the son, and and I thought God was going to present the bride to the son. And here what you're saying is Jesus is presenting the bride pure and spotless to himself. How can Jesus do that? Only if he's God. He's presenting you and I, his rescued and redeemed brides, to himself. It's the same language from Genesis and Revelation. He's giving us the purpose of marriage, but he's also giving us the purpose and the answer to life itself. Every person, every one of us, is absolutely desperate for purpose, for meaning, for life, for value. We're we're hungry for, why am I here and what was I created for? Paul's in essence asking, do you want to know what you were created for? You were created for marriage to Jesus. You were not created for isolation and individualism. You weren't even created for the earthly version of marriage that pops in your head. And you certainly weren't created for the broken, hurting marriage that you're in or the bombed out, cratered version of marriage that you once had. And you weren't even created for all of those that were joyously married and lost their spouse. You weren't even created for that As beautiful as it is, you're created for something infinitely more, infinitely better. You're created for marriage to Christ. All of that leads us to the practical reality and implications of what Paul is saying. Paul has been focused on Jesus and and the infinite blessing that comes with union to him. And then he comes down to marriage and he can't help himself. He goes back up to, to Christ and says, hey, this is all pointing to him. But he knows this is profound, but this can't stay at the profound. It has to be brought down. It has to be applied. It has to be lived out in the everyday reality of right here, right now. And that's why... Ephesians 5.33 is so clunky in the text. I'm saying that marriage is all about Jesus. 
However, it's like an abrupt gear shift. It's an abrupt halt because Paul doesn't want us just, just, just to stay there. That's beautiful. Understand your identity. Understand what Jesus has done for you. But it has to be lived out. It has to be poured out in every relationship. And that's what Paul is doing with Ephesians 5.33 and the rest of, of 5 and the rest of 6, rather. He's saying it must be poured out. Paul knows this is profound, but he wants... He refuses to let us just stay there. He wants us to bring this out and pour it out in everyday life. And rather than, again, get into the the great wisdom that is in just in verse 33, we need to understand the principle of what he's doing. First and foremost, he's saying our identity is radically transformed by Jesus. I am loved. You are loved. Do you realize that That John, in John chapter 3 verse 29 says that Jesus is the true bridegroom. And then later in John chapter 20, he says, calls himself the beloved of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. That's enough for John. That's his identity. That's who I am. I'm loved by the bridegroom. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for you? What other status, identity, and value are you trying to add to Jesus and his love for you? You're wanted, you're desired, you're pursued, you're loved by the king of heaven, by the groom of heaven. Not only that, you've been given a new name. You are the bride of Christ. You are the redeemed. You are the, the, you're in covenant with the God of the universe. Not only that, Paul says, your possessions have changed. Your inheritance has changed. And that's what he's articulating in Ephesians chapter 1. You have an in, enormous, infinite, you don't even know that the, what you know of what you have in Jesus is this much. It's the tip of the iceberg. But this identity isn't just yours, it's y'all's. <laughs> It's all of ours. It's a corporate identity. It's Christ and the church. It's not just us individually. It is, but it's also us individually collected together. This is our new identity in Christ. So our marriage changes our identity, but it also changes our actions. It transforms our actions. It's intended to. It's expected to change our actions. It changes my individual actions before him. I must yield to him. But when I look at how he wields his authority, I say, you know what? I want that leadership. I want that love. I want him in my life. You are the king. You are the groom. I will follow you. Yes, I want your leadership. I will follow you. That's what, that's what it calls me to. And then, you know what? As I stare at his leadership and the way he pours it out, the way he loves with compassion and empathy, I say, you know what? I want to lead that way. I want to love that way. I want to do exactly what he's doing. I want to pour that out in love and compassion and tender care on everyone I come in contact with. Go back and read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 33. What I've just described is what Paul is saying is how we're to live in marriage. It changes our actions. That new identity transforms how I, I, I love others. It, it's not just individual, it all, it's also corporate. It overflows into every relationship. Our marriage and union to him is not a secondary afterthought. The gospel is not an add-on. You don't need ten principles and, oh yeah, let me get the gospel. You need the gospel as the foundation and then we add wisdom. And why is that? Because you will never ever 
apply the love and the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus if you've not experienced it. You were intended, all of us were intended to look at what he, how he has loved me and, and poured out his grace and forgiveness on me and then be shaped by that, transformed by that. And then pour it out. It's only as we stare at him that we're melted and moved by his grace. And it's only as we stay staring at him. It's only as we stay in lockstep with him. It's only as we stay in intimate union with him. That we're ever sustained and enabled to pour out grace, love, and forgiveness in every relationship that we might encounter. This mystery of the son leaving his father to cling to his bride, to become one flesh with her, is profound. But I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Is his love, is his acceptance, is his pursuit of you, his bride, enough? Is the king of heaven coming after you enough? Or are you searching for another identity? Are you trying to add something on to Jesus? By whose power and grace and love and forgiveness are you trying to sustain the relationships that you're in? By whose power? If you're trying to sustain it by your own power, you are powerless. You are rudderless in the storm. Jesus' pursuit of his bride is the storyline of the Bible. It's the reason marriage was given. Our one flesh union to Christ is the hope. It is the riches. It is the power we desperately need in every relationship. And here's what's amazing. We've talked about his infinite love. His love is staggering. His love is astonishing. But we've only scratched the surface because his love, the the, the, the unbelievable universe of his love, as we stare through the telescope of marriage and see it, it comes into clearer focus when we realize that he loves us even though we are adulterous betrayers of him. And yet he still came for us. And yet he still wants me. While I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. This love we're studying is staggering. It's astonishing, and we've only scratched the surface. Next week, we're going to explore this adulterous attitude that we have, this rebellious attitude, this betrayal attitude that all of us have, and yet his love for us still. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your son. May we be floored by this. May we be melted by this. May we be astonished by his love for us. May, I, may this not just be some distant theological principle. May this come down to the right here, right now reality of, of my life and who I am. I am the beloved of Jesus, my heavenly groom. He wants me, though I have betrayed him time and time again. He came for me behind enemy lines, covered in dirt and soot and filthy rags. And he scooped me up as his bride. And he cleaned me and purified me, washing me with water, making me pure and spotless and without wrinkles so that he might present me to himself in glorious splendor. Oh, what love. May we be moved by that.
melted by it. And may we pour it out on everyone we're around. If we're married, it's our spouses. If we have children, it's our children. If we're unmarried, it's every relationship we have. It doesn't matter. We are intended and expected to pour it out. May we be a people who are pouring out the infinite, astonishing love of Christ. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.